You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. If you have a Bible with you, you can look at uh, Judges uh, chapter 17. Judges chapter 17. We are rounding the corner uh, on the book of Judges. We've been studying this for some time. And by the way, if we've not met, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to extend, just as Jared did, a welcome to you and say it's great to have you with us and those of you online as well. It's great to have you uh, with us this morning. But we have been studying the book of Judges. And um, as we've been studying it, we are now to the final section. There's five chapters at the end of the book, and that's where we are. We're, we're no longer in the cycle, so we showed a cycle almost every week about what happened to the book. You know, the people served God, then the people did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and then God raised up a judge and delivered them. Well, the cycle's done. It finished with the 12th judge, which was uh, Samson that we looked at last week. So now we're down to two stories at the end of the book. One of the stories is in chapter 17 and 18. We're only going to introduce the story today. But the one, there's one story about corrupt religion, corrupt faith, and then there's a story that's one of the most, uh, that's one of the most dark stories in all the Bible. From chapters 19 through 21, it's about corrupt morality. So corrupt religion and then corrupt morality is what we are going to be looking at today. But today I want to talk about the theme of DIY religion. DIY religion. DIY, of course, stands for do-it-yourself religion. And over the course of the last year, if you do any reading at what's happened, DIY home projects have taken off. Because what happened was during uh, the time of lockdown, which varied in different places uh, in the country, uh, people were stuck in their homes. And, and two things happened. One is they saw stuff in their homes that didn't bother them when they lived a busy lifestyle and were out at the office and whatever else. But now they're looking at it 24-7 and it's just annoying. That's one thing. And secondly, people had a lot of time on their hands. So during the period of uh, the last year or so, 70% of Americans said that they tackled some home improvement project. And so Lowe's and Home Depot blew up this this last year uh, with people doing DIY projects. As a matter of fact, because of COVID, there was all kinds of DIY projects. Projects. If you can remember back to the early days when you couldn't get out and everything was shut down, there were DIY haircuts. I don't remember if you remember those videos uh, or you got on a Zoom call with somebody and said, what happened? <laughs> you know, uh, can I pray for you? This is concerning. So people were cutting their own hair. Schools uh, sort of shut down, and so we had DIY school, didn't we? Have, uh, maybe your, your children were in public or private school, but all of a sudden it was DIY school for you. And all of those things are fine and good and were a season that we went through and, and uh, last year. But I think there was also an increase in DIY religion, DIY church, DIY faith, 
And that's what the text for today is all about. So we're going to read the text, we're going to walk through the story, and then I'm going to make some applications about DIY religion. So let's look in Judges 17, verses 1 through 6, and let's uh, listen to God's holy word. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image, and it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Well, the book so far has been a cycle of looking at what happens when the people do evil in the sight of the Lord. And we've seen evil in the life of the judges, but we've never gotten an up-close look at what was life really like in Israel. And this last section of the book shows us that this was typical life in Israel during the period of the judges. And what we see happening in this passage is a number of different events that I want to walk through and then, like I said, make some application. Well, the the story starts off with a theft. A theft. The first thing we're learning is people are stealing in these days. We meet a man from the hill country. His name is Micah. And the first thing we learn about him is he is a thief and not just any kind of thief, the kind of thief that steals from his mama. That kind of thief. It didn't get any lower than that in, in the, in the uh, status of thieves, stealing from your mom. And so he stole a hefty amount of silver, 1,100 pieces of silver from his mom. And the story opens with a confession. But if you read this verse carefully, it, it sounds to me like not a really bold, conscience-stricken, fear-of-God confession. It sounds like a confession that one of your kids might make. Uh, He like rambles. Look at verse 2. He said to his mother, verse 2, he said to his mother, "Uh, Hey, mom, uh, this is a grown man, by the way, Uh, the 1,100 pieces of silver, you know, that like were taken from you and everything, um, you know, like, and then you gave a curse, you uttered a curse about whoever took that 1,100 pieces of silver, and, and, and also you spoke that. Well, you spoke that curse in my ears, and so I heard like what you said about the curse, about the 1,100 uh, pieces of silver, and so like, behold, I've got the silver. (laughs) Can you imagine? Uh, I took it. I mean, that's how this reads. It's phrase upon phrase. He doesn't say, 
oh, in the fear of the Lord, mom, how could you ever forgive me? I stole it. He just goes through this big rigmarole thing. So there is a theft. Well, the next thing there is in the passage that we see is there is a curse. We've not only got stealing from your mom, but we've got mom placing curses on people. She spoke a curse so that the guilty party, whoever stole this sum of money, would experience some type of harm. And the sense that we get from Micah's confession is that he doesn't have this profound struggle with his conscience. He he isn't meditating on the Ten Commandments and convicted that he is stolen. He wants to get out from under a curse. That's what he says, you you lost the money, and remember the curse you spoke, which was in my ears, I heard about that, well, I don't want to be under that curse is the implication. This is all kind of wrong at so many levels, just this window, the first window we get into the life of Israel at the conclusion of the judges' cycle. Well, following the curse, there is a blessing, so there's a theft, there's a curse, and then there's a blessing. Look at verse 2. His mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. And she uses the covenant name Yahweh. Whenever you see in your Bible, Lord, written with all capital letters, it's a translation of the name of God, Yahweh, which means I am that I am. It's the name that he revealed to Moses. It's the holy, sacred name of the Lord. So she gets the money back and she says, bless my son in the name of Yahweh. She is a good, orthodox believer, recognizing that the source of all blessing is from Yahweh, who created all things, who delivered his people from slavery out of Egypt, who gave them this wonderful land, their glorious God, Yahweh. She's not worshiping the Baals. She doesn't bless him in the name of Ashtaroth. She's not giving praise to Dagon, the god of the Philistines that we read about last week, uh, whose temple Samson died in. No, she is blessing in the Lord. And not only that, not only is there a blessing, there's a dedication. There's a theft, there's a curse, there's a blessing, and now there's a dedication. She says, verse 3, and he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I dedicate the silver to Yahweh. It's restored, and so I'm going to give all of this money to my God. Oh, but the sentence doesn't stop there. From my hand, for my son, to make a carved image and a metal image. This language... This language is found elsewhere in Scripture where God forbids this very act. Deuteronomy 27 says this, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image. That's what's happening. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, And sets it up in secret, and all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Well, all the people, but Micah and his mom, not those people. Cursed be the person that does this. So he removes himself from mama's curse and puts himself under God's curse. 
That's what's happening here. Cursed be anybody who would do this. It's ironic, isn't it? Well, most of the book of Judges, we have seen Israel worshiping false gods, the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But this is different here. They're not going to Baal for crops or something like that. Uh, They're not worshiping forbidden gods. They're worshiping the true God in a forbidden way. That's what's going on here. It's the difference in the first and the second commandment. So the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not worship any other god. The second commandment is you shall have, uh, the second commandment is you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or earth below. She is blessing the Lord. She is dedicating money to the Lord, and she is purchasing images for the worship of the Lord. So she's doing something different than we've seen at other places. Of course, idolatry knows no bounds uh, and, and in Israel in this season. So that's what she is doing. She is breaking or she is commissioning her son uh, to break the second commandment. He goes to a silversmith, he gives the silversmith 200 pieces of silver, and he makes a carved image and a metal image. So, so why is this forbidden, by the way? And this is really important. Why did God forbid the creating of an image to worship him? I mean, she could just be a really sincere believer, and this helps her get in touch with God. So what is wrong with this? Well, the problem with a carved image, a metal image, any kind of image used in worship of God is that the image will only convey part of God's nature to us. It it, it only gives us a picture that is incomplete, and it necessarily hides other attributes of God. So this is what happened when Aaron created the golden calf. So Moses is up getting the Ten Commandments. Aaron's down with the people. They all give him their gold. He makes the golden calf. And it says, after he made the golden calf, he declared a festival to Yahweh. What was he doing? He was saying, this image will help us remember something about God who delivered us from Egypt. uh, The calf could communicate that God is strong, for sure. But the the calf does not communicate God is merciful, God is loving, God is holy, God is triune, God is eternal, God is righteous. It shows us one image that everybody worships, but it, but it hides all kinds of attributes of God. And so what happens when you create a statue is that you customize your worship of God around one, perhaps, truth of God, and you end up worshiping God as you design him or as you depict him to be. We worship God according to our choosing and our preference And we necessarily eliminate truths of Scripture that reveal parts of God that maybe we don't prefer. Not parts of God, but attributes of God that maybe we don't prefer. So when you create an image, it it may communicate, it could communicate a truth about God. But it's the truth that you chose. It's you fashioning God in the image that you want to worship and celebrate. That's what happens in DIY religion. And that's what's happening here with Micah and his mom. What's what's happening with them is common, by the way. 
It's very common today. Now, I don't know people carving images to worship Jesus Christ or something like this, but there is plenty of cherry-picking God's attributes that we like best and then worshiping that mental image of him. The principle's the same. Maybe not the physical uh, carving, but the carving represented a mental image of God. And that happens frequently. We cherry-pick what we like about God, and we worship him according to the image that we hold in our mind. This is what's happening every time you hear this phrase. I like to think of God as whatever follows is likely idolatry. It's likely breaking the second commandment, not by a statue, but by by concealing much of God's character and worshiping him in the way I want. I like to think of God as loving. God loves all people. I, I don't like to think of God as judgmental. That can work the opposite way too. I like to think of God as holy and he's going to get every one of you sorry, you know, that kind of idea. Where's the God of mercy and the God of gospel and grace and all that? It doesn't just work on the God that makes me feel good. It could also be the angry person with the angry God that's incomplete as well. It works both both for the uh, hyper hyper left and hyper right, if we could say them that way. It works both ways, that we can create an image of God in our own mind, coming to him on our terms. It's interesting, it's not only DIY religion, it's apparently discount religion as well, because she takes 200 pieces and gives it to the silversmith without explanation for the other 900. So there's a whole other message there about making a pledge and not fulfilling it and all that kind of, we're all a little bit more generous in our minds than we are practically, right? Oh, I'm a very giving person uh, until I see, oh, well, I gave only 200 of the 1,100. Yeah, that's true as well, but that's maybe a different topic for a different day. So it's a discount DIY religion. They were having a sale down at Home Depot, the God Depot, I guess. They were having a sale down there. So back to the story. We have a theft, we have a curse, we have a blessing. Then we have a dedication, and then we have a shrine. Verse 5 says, the man Micah had a shrine. Uh, A shrine means house of God. At his house, he's got his own personal house of God. And and in his Micah's house of God, uh, he made an ephod. There's only to be one ephod on the planet, and it's to be at this stage of life at the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and it is only to be used by the priest ordained by God because one of the functions of the ephod was there was two stones. It was like a breastplate that that was worn by by the high priest, and there were two stones that were used that helped, we don't know exactly how, but helped discern the will of God. So the ephod was where they went to consult the will of God. But, but not everybody did that, only somebody ordained by God to hear from God for the people of God. But hey, he's got his own personal ephod. He can do his own deal with God. I don't know. I don't know what the word says, but God told me. I went to the ephod. God told me this was okay. So we got an ephod, we can do that. Oh, and speaking of a priest, he doesn't have a priest, so he just takes it upon himself to ordain. Verse 5, he ordained 
conveniently, one of his sons to become his priest. Never mind that the Bible says that all priests are from Levi, the family of Levi. You must be a Levite to be a priest. But in DIY religion, I can choose anybody to minister to me. And if it's my own son, that's all the better. Because uh, he's kind of under my thumb, right? My, my son's going to do what probably dad likes, the mom likes, or grandma likes, uh, the grandma who funded this house of God. So he's got statues and gods, he's got ephod, he's got his own priest. Like, who needs the old covenant? Who needs it? I mean, it's all right there for him. So, what's the story? We have a theft, a curse, a blessing, a dedication, a shrine, and lastly, we have a mess. Verse 6 says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the theme of the last section of Judges. This verse, in some shape or form, will be mentioned four times in these last five chapters because this is the season of the judges in the history of Israel. They had come into the Holy Land. They had such a great calling. God had done so many wonderful things. They were to build a glorious, righteous society, just society, uh, according to God's word, living by his word that was to be a testimony to the nations. But we got a mess. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. They're acting just like the nations with this sort of convenient DIY religion. that They've forgotten God. They've forgotten, throughout Judges it says, they forgot the God who brought them out of Egypt. They've also forgotten that God determines how God is to be worshipped. That's a very important detail that's forgotten in this whole mess. We only know who God is, and how we are to worship him because he's revealed himself in scriptures. See, biblical faith, Christianity, is a revealed faith. You don't come up with it. You don't determine it. You don't self-navigate it. You don't, I like to think of Jesus as fill in the blank. No. God determines how he is to be worshiped. He is God. We are the worshipers who worship according to who he is and how he has prescribed for us to worship. When we determine ourselves how God is to be worshipped, how we like to think of him, then we put ourselves in his place. God dictates the terms of following God. Jesus dictates the terms of discipleship, not us. And that's hard news in a DIY culture where I like to have it how I want it, when I want it, and if it doesn't, I'll just do it myself. Do it myself. Let's make some application of this passage. And let me ask you this question. Do you have any DIY projects going on in your faith? Got any do-it-yourself spiritual improvement projects going on in your faith. I think there are two places where we naturally can look to see if we have customized Christianity going on. And they are how we view God and how we view his church. 
And those aren't my ideas. Those are the exact points of this passage. Micah and Mama's problem is how they view God and how they view corporate worship. That's the problem. It's not just that they made a mistake or they've got a different style or kind of get in line here a little bit, tighten things up. No, it's that they have a fundamentally different view of God than God is because they're not submitted to the Scripture. And they have a fundamentally different view about what it means to be among the people of God and worship corporately before him. First of all, your view of God. It's easy for all of us to selectively shape our view of God from our own preferences, our own desires, our own history, the kind of teachings we like, our politics, our emotional makeup, our sort of personality, how we're wired. It's interesting, a lot of people, how they are wired in their personality, God's a lot like that to them, you know? <laughs> go-getter, God's all about going and, and getting and, you know, the not go-getter. Yeah, I'm, I'm just more in a con- contemplative sort of, sort of, it's funny how our personality often dictates our view of God and that's not the way it should be. One of the best tests of DIY religion and our understanding of God is this question. Does God ever contradict or disagree with you? Does God ever contradict or disagree with you? Does God make demands of you? If not, you've got a God of your own making and not the God of the Bible. If you can encounter the God of the Bible and never feel adjusted, convicted, disagreed with, or demanded upon, then you're looking at the mirror at yourself rather than the Scripture being the standard. David Jackman, in his commentary about judges in this passage, wrote, Above all, and at all costs, what natural human beings want is a God that will not make demands of our lives, one that will give us what we need but require nothing in return. That's it. God, give me what I need, but don't ask anything of me. I mean, look at Micah here. He's like, you can serve God and worship just like the culture. This is how they do it. They got a shrine at their house. They've got carved images at their house. You could be just like them, and we still dedicated it to Yahweh and, you know, made some comments about Yahweh, and we're blessed by Yahweh. Yahweh bless you. We say that when somebody sneezes. I mean, we still got the the kind of God thing going on. But see, think about this. If God is transcendent and holy and completely other than us, wouldn't you expect that when you read the Bible or worship the Lord that you would sort of regularly come to these moments where you're uncomfortable in his holiness? Now, we don't live as Christians in an uncomfortable place. His holiness causes us to see our sin and to run to the cross where we uh, freshly receive his forgiveness, to run to the empty tomb when we are reminded of the risen Christ and the power of Christ in us to change us, to live for him. We run to the throne where he has ascended to rule over all. We don't stay in that sense of I'm uncomfortable before his holiness, Um, we go to the Savior who saved us. But we must 
live in the fear of the Lord. If there's no fear of the Lord, then, then I've got a God of my own making. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of understanding. If I don't sense the fear of the Lord in my life at all, then it's probably not biblical Christianity, but do-it-yourself religion that stirs me. I mean, do you ever encounter the Lord in the Bible and feel conviction of sin? Do you ever encounter the Lord in the Bible, look at your life, and complain to the Lord because you believe that God is really sovereign, and so at some level what's going on in our life, he is overseeing that. Uh, He is, uh, all things happen according to his will. That's why a third of the Psalms are laments. A third of the worship songs in the Bible have some issue of complaining against God. Why? Because they see God as sovereign. Not because they think, well, God can't do anything about that. That's God in my image. I'll fix it. God can't do anything about that. I'll fix it. Biblical Christianity has some complaint to it because God has a view of God is sovereign. God is holy. He is sovereign. He is over all. We cannot domesticate God. We cannot put God on a leash. He is not tame. We have made him safe and palatable. And so we have a God of our own liking. It's just not the God of the Bible. So we must come to the scripture and we must ask that God would reveal himself in the scripture, all of his attributes, so that we celebrate his mercy. We celebrate his holiness. We celebrate his forgiveness. We celebrate his judgment, it may be in whispered tones, but we celebrate that the righteous God of all will make all things right. So, how do we know if we have a DIY religion? Well, we look at our view of God. Secondly, we look at our view of his church. What does Micah think about corporate worship? It's all determined by his preferences. I remember when we first planted this church, if you're new here, um, you may not know, but I, I grew up in Texas, but I came from California. I grew up in Texas, but I lived in California, Ginger and I lived in California a long time, almost two decades. All our kids were born there. And we moved here to plant a church. And I remember where I was standing 15 years ago as I'm trying to get acclimated. I grew up here, but I'm trying to get acclimated to Dallas church culture. Like, it's different than most of the world and most of church history. If you're, if you're unaware, if you were born here and you've never been to any church outside of Dallas, I'd recommend you get, get around a little bit. But, and I had had some exposure. I mean, I've done some travel and, and been to some places and worship, seen how Christians in other places live. Um, and I lived in California, which was very different from here, the church culture. So I'm trying to get acclimated to the church culture here. And uh, I'm at, at a sports camp, my kid's at a sports camp, I'm standing on the side, and I hear this lady talk about church. And the lady says to her, what church do you go to? Which would never be a presumptive question where I came from in California. <laughs> it wouldn't be a presumption. But so what church do you go to? And she says, well, I don't really go to one church. I go to this church, and she named it, because I like the music and the worship. And then when the worship is over, I leave and I go to this church because I like the preaching 
at this church. Now, I had been to both of those churches in visiting ground, and I totally agree with her assessment. (laughs) The music was way better at that one, and the preaching was way better at that one. I don't fault her tastes. I fault her doctrine of the church. I I was stunned. You mean you can pick and choose? You can go here and do this? You can go here and do this? Post-COVID, in a DIY world, that's the norm. I watch a live stream. Hello to my friends on the live stream. Don't turn this off. (laughs) Stick with me. I'm going to say some things to you, then I'm going to nail them. But stick with me for a minute. (laughs) So, I can pick whatever music I like. And I can do it in my PJs with a cup of coffee, having just woken up, sleeping. And I can just pick this church's music. I like that one. And then I can move over and watch my church's sermon. And if that gets a little boring, there's somebody much better on. And I can go watch that one. And maybe I'll dial back here at the end for the announcements because I like to know what's going on at the church that I functionally don't participate in. (laughs) There are a lot of advantages to live stream. If you are investigating Christianity, thank you for watching. That is a primary reason we do this. If you are looking for a church and you want to get a flavor of the church before you attend, absolutely wonderful. That is fantastic. There's other reasons to watch a live stream. Health concerns. Uh, You're on vacation. Hope you're enjoying the beach today. Whatever it is, you're on vacation. That's wonderful as, as well. And yet, we have to look at the idea that DIY religion is primarily about convenience. Do you know what's going on in this story? What's happening in this story is Micah can do his own thing at his own shrine. He doesn't have to travel all the way to Shiloh for those festivals. You don't got to get the kids packed and ready and make the long walk. It's not expensive. You don't have to take your unblemished animal, go all the way to Shiloh so that the priest can sacrifice your animal for the forgiveness of sins. You don't have to submit yourself to the priest down there in Shiloh. My son's my priest. I don't have a priest. I do whatever I want. I fire my priest anytime I want. My, My son, do you see what he is doing He has his own residential priest to pray for him. It's so convenient. And with all the changes in the last year and a half and the DIY culture where we cut our own hair and build our own decks and do everything else, we we sort of are now more, more frequently, many of us are just constructing our own religion. And this passage speaks to it. Let me ask you this. Here's a similar question to does God demand anything from you? Here's another question. Does God demand anything of you among his people? Micah's got no commitments to the people of God. He, has, he doesn't have to do anything down at the temple. He's his own man. He's his own religion. He's created God in his image, actually. Do do the people of God make any demand on you? Again, there are great reasons why we can't be together at times, and I've acknowledged them, and if you're still here, thank you. Uh, 
But if God's word speaks to you, please receive the challenge. Receive the challenge. It can happen, DIY can happen in a live stream world. It can happen with people in this room as well. Because just because you show up to a building doesn't mean you're engaged with the people of God. I can show up to a building and go home and, and not serve, not engage, not pray for anyone, not draw anyone out. I mean, sure, it's easy when you don't have to go to Shiloh or you watch a live stream. You don't have to encounter the person that talks too much to you afterwards. You're, right? Sure, you don't have some kid kicking the back of your seat uh, when it's doing your own thing. You can avoid the messiness, but I think it's easy to avoid the messiness live as well. One of the best questions I've been asked, we've had a lot of guests come recently. Here's the be- I've been asked this multiple times. What does it mean to be a member of this church? How can I join this church? That is fantastic. That is so wonderful, so refreshing. We're going to be talking about that in the next couple of weeks, so hang on. Uh, I'll answer that question for you. But that is great. They're saying, I want to engage I want to engage. Does participating in the church cost you anything? Is there any service? Is there any inconvenience? Is there any sacrifice involved? Oh, it's a thrill to be involved in the church. It's a joy. It's, there's a unity and a care and a burden bearing. But there's an inconvenience. I read the New Testament. There's not a church in the New Testament that it wouldn't have been a pain to be a part of. Every one of them, some of them, Corinthians, Galatians, some of them would be unbelievable. But even the best churches, Philippians, even there Paul's saying, hey, names a couple of ladies in the church. Can't you all get along? Can everybody get along over there? It's, it's always inconvenient to be a part of God's church. And yet, if we do not commit and invest our lives somewhere for the long haul We will never grow in God. Micah is not a mature believer. Mama ain't a saint. These are seriously defective people spiritually. Comfortable? Oh, yeah. At ease? You bet. Excited about their faith? Probably. They created it. They probably are just not growing, just not maturing. And that's the heart burden. That's the heart burden of a season like this, of any time that people would think in the guise of activity and learning and reading and listening and, man, I'm watching more sermons and songs than I ever have. In the midst of all that, to think that somehow spiritual maturity is occurring when that may not be the case. Our view of God, our view of his church. Well, here's what we need. Verse 6, in those days there was no king in Israel. What's he saying? We need a king. He's saying if there was a king, he'd get in here and stop all this nonsense with Micah. We need a king. And guess what? We have a king. His name is Jesus. And he rules over his church. And he is saving people, imperfect people, flawed people. 
and he is joining them together as the people of God and maturing the people of God. And this king says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. And all kinds of people are building their own kingdoms and doing their own thing. They're going to go by the wayside. But those who follow Jesus and hear his call and invest their lives in what he's building and come under his reign will experience, oh, challenges for sure, but will experience the very reason that we were created, to be a part of God's mission to make all things new. This is what he's doing and what he's called us to. And nobody got a better idea. Micah ain't got a better plan. You ain't got a better plan. I ain't got a better plan. Jesus has the plan. The Word of God shows us who he is. The Word of God is the plan for what the local church is to be like. And he gives us tools of technology like this to supplement and to evangelize and to communicate the gospel to those who can't hear and to at times serve those who can't be with us as well. But God has given us a plan. It's the teaching of God's word, the application of God's word, the equipping of the saints to go out and follow Jesus, to live for God in all of life, to take the light into the darkness It's for his community to be gathered, to care for one another so that people are known. People are using their gifts. No one is alone, but people are joined together in community. It's for the receiving of the sacraments, which aren't come up with what you want, but they're baptism and communion prescribed by King Jesus for the nourishing of his church. It's putting shepherds in place to care for the flock. It's raising up all other kinds of leaders, deacons, and various other kinds of leaders to serve the people of God. It's a community where we gather to live for Jesus and his mission and the glory as we get to do it all together. This is the plan of God, and he's not looking for ideas. There's not a suggestion box of how we've got a better idea for how to do religion than Jesus. This passage is a warning. I I was going to teach both chapters this week, 17 and 18, because there's all one story. This story just leads, I'm just reading you the intro of the story. I was so provoked by the intro by saying, Lord, this is where we are. This is us. This is Our church, this is the evangelical church. This is the U.S. I can't speak to the church in other places, but this is what it is. This is us. We're experiencing this. God, help us. And it doesn't matter whether you're in the room or on the live stream. We're all all tempted by this, this sort of radical individualism that just says, I'll have my own shrine instead of I'll invest my life with the people of God even when it's challenging and difficult for this is what you are doing. Oh, Lord, building your church. Do-it-yourself religion is self-created. It's shaping God and his church in a mold that fits me. And so it is self-worship. But serving the king is submitting to his rule, living in the power of the gospel, walking out his mission in all of life, fulfilling his purpose in the world. This is what Israel lost in the book of Judges. They lost their purpose They lost their way. There's one other glorious truth here, and that's we don't need images. We need a king. And the king that we have 
is the ultimate image of God. Listen to Hebrews 1. He, this is Jesus, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The writer of Hebrews says, the glory of God, the radiance of the blazing light, the blazing holiness of God. You want to see the holiness of God? Well, the exact imprint of the holiness of God is Jesus, who is God himself. We don't need a statue because we got a risen king. And his spirit is opening our eyes to his word, and he is with us now. And he has told us how he is to be worshipped. So if the band would join me, we're going to worship on his terms and receive communion this morning. This wasn't our fancy idea. This was his eternal plan to communicate how he is rescuing the world and how he is redeeming what was lost in the garden and how he is making all things. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.